The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. All these young people up here really is a testimony to the work that God is doing among our youth and among the leaders in our youth. And uh, the leader there uh, of that youth is uh, Dave Tate. So Dave is here to uh, preach the word. I thought it was appropriate on graduation Sunday for him to be here. He's also our resident Washington Redskin, so you can boo him or clap for him right now. Take your face. We all know Central Texas loves the Redskins now. RG3, Lake Seastrunk. I mean, a Redskin is from Temple High School. How awesome is that? That's incredible. I'm excited. I'm excited. All right, turn to 3 John. 3 John. I learned this week that 3 John is the shortest book in the Bible. So I want to thank Gary for giving me so much to work with this morning. So while you're turning, so recently I needed to have some uh, work done on my house, some remodeling, some painting done. And so I asked my good friend, Shannon Sword, college pastor here at the church, who he'd recommend. And he said, I got this guy for you that I can recommend to you. And his name is uh, Jesus. And so he gives me the guy's number. But the problem was, Shannon didn't have his last name. And so I'm just putting in my phone the name Jesus. (laughs) And so even once I met the guy and I knew his last name, I thought, you know, I kind of want to leave it this way because this could make life really interesting. And so if this guy were to call me, this is what it would look like on my phone. (laughs) And so this led to some really interesting scenarios. So one night my wife is, I'm texting the guy to make an appointment to meet with him. And my wife says, you know, what are you doing? And I'm like, just texting Jesus. (laughs) And then then one time uh, I'm with someone in my office meeting with them. And the guy calls me. And I'm like... Uh, excuse me, I've really got to take this. This is Jesus calling me. <laughs> Hello? And then one time with my six-year-old son in my office at home, and, and the guy calls me again, and so I say, Landon, guess what? Jesus is calling me. And he's like, no way. <laughs> that required some explanation on that one. But the reason why I think that's funny to us is because None of us can really imagine knowing Jesus like that, can we? we? We can't imagine knowing him in this like sort of personal, casual way. Because to us, he is God, he is the Messiah. But I think it's helpful for us to remember that people like John, John wrote the book of 3 John, people like John actually knew him like that. Not just Messiah, not just Savior, but they also knew him in a very casual, personal way. They spent time with him. And so we see this actually, and I'm going to ask you to go over to 1 John, 1 John chapter 1, we'll start there. And I would say that, um, that John may have known Jesus better than anyone on the earth, in a personal, casual kind of way. Because if you recall, in the Gospel of John, John affectionately refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved, Right? How's that for humility? And and so John knew Jesus in a very casual, personal way. But I want you to see evidence of this in 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. It says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, 
The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. So John here is talking about Jesus. And Jesus was not just someone they'd heard about or saw a vision of or had a dream about. Jesus, they actually knew him personally. They spent time with him. You'll see words in this passage like they heard, saw, touched. I want to just tell you this morning, if you're someone who's a skeptic, if you're not quite sure what you believe about the Christian faith, I want to encourage you this morning that you can take heart. I believe these things really happened. We also see the word we in this passage quite a bit. This is not just John having some crazy vision or crazy dream and then turning it into a cult. This is people, groups of people that really saw him, really spent time with him, really saw him do miracles, really saw the resurrected Christ. And we get to read these people's writings. Like we get to read the, the guy who spent time with Jesus in a personal way. These are eyewitness accounts. And so I think you'd be encouraged this morning that Christianity is not just about having blind faith. These are eyewitness accounts of Jesus Christ. And so before we explore third John, I think it's important to reassure ourselves, knowing there really were people like John who knew Jesus in that way. So look with me in third uh, John, verse 1. John is writing this letter to his friend Gaius, who's a church leader, who's in need of some encouragement. So 1st and 2nd John are written to the church, and 3rd John is written to his friend Gaius. Scholars say that this is the most personal letter that John ever wrote. Look in verse 1. It says, The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. What does it mean to love someone in truth? I doubt that you have said that phrase to someone before. You know, I really love you in truth. Like, we don't typically mix those words together. And so... What does it mean to love someone in truth? We think this means this is the truth of the gospel tying these two men together. Stephen preached on Philemon a couple weeks ago when he talked about how the, the truth of the gospel, Jesus Christ binding men together, binding Paul and the slave owner and the slave together in the book of Philemon. And we see the same thing here. We see him loving him in truth, the truth of the gospel, tying these two men together together. And we see the word truth all throughout John's writings. It's a theme in his gospel, a theme in all of John's works. And I think most people in our culture think of truth as a statement or a proposition, right? Like a statement's either false or true. So, for example, the Aggies are going to stink without Johnny Manziel. I'm not saying that's true. I'm just saying that that's a propositional statement, right? It's either true or it's false. And so most of us think about that when we think about the idea of truth. Or how about this one? In, in our culture today, uh, one of the most popular songs out there is the happy song. You guys know the happy song uh, by Pharaoh Williams, really catchy. I'm not bashing the happy song this morning. Don't get upset with me. But the happy song, in the happy song, the words are happiness is the truth. Happiness is the truth. And so this is how some people live. You know, whatever makes me happy, that's my truth. If it's doing this, this, or this, then that's, that's what, how I'm going to live. That's my truth. But for John, truth is not just what makes you happy. Truth is not a propositional statement. It's not only that. But truth is a person in John. 
Truth is the person of Jesus Christ. Truth is personified in the Savior Jesus Christ. And so the way John lives out his life and the reason why he can say things like, Gaius, whom I love in truth, is because John believed that if we have Christ in common, then we have everything in common. He believed if we have Jesus Christ in common, then we have all things in common together. Look at verse uh, 2. It says, Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. So there were some believers with Gaius, and they'd report back to John about this man Gaius, and they would say, man, this guy, this man Gaius, he is living it, he is walking in truth, he is living out what he says he believes. And so this man Gaius had a reputation that other people knew about and discussed. And the question I want to ask you this morning is if, if people that you know had to give an account for your faith and for your life, walk with Christ, what would they say? If someone else had to, if one of your friends had to report to someone else about your faith and your life and your walk with Christ, what would they say about your walk? Is it like the faith of Gaius, where his belief matches his life? He's walking and living in truth. What does it mean to walk in truth? We see that idea all the way throughout this book and also John's other works. In the church, I think we talk a lot about the idea of believing truth, knowing truth, and those things are, those are very important things. But in the Bible, we see something even beyond that. We see believing truth leads to walking in the truth. This implies obedience. Have you ever met someone who just gets it? Someone that their life before Christ was was pretty chaotic, pretty messed up. They come to know Christ, the gospel changes them, and they just seem to get it. Like it just... It just sinks into them. Like every ounce of their being has just changed. I mean, do they sin? Of course they do. They're struggling Christian like anyone else. But they just change. And and you can just see in their eyes, like they understand what this thing means. They get it. They understand it. And it changes them. This is what it means to walk in the truth. This is an example of that. This is the man, Gaius. This would be someone who has, actually has the nerve to obey God. They have the audacity to obey Him. You know, people say things like, yeah, yeah, I believe all that stuff. I believe those things about Jesus. But then live as if it's not true. This person says, no, no, that's, that's not what it's supposed to be. I'm going to walk in truth. I'm going to obey Him. Actually do what He says. I love verse 4. Look at verse 4 again. It says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Let me tell you as a pastor, especially a high school pastor, there is no person that brings me greater joy than someone who's walking in the truth, than someone who's living it out. And I'll tell you as a pastor on staff here at TBC, I can speak for all the pastors here at the church. 
that this is our greatest desire for you here at this church. We care more about seeing our people walk in the truth than we care about bodies in the seats, budgets, or buildings. This is what we care the most about. It's to see our people walk in the truth. There's just something amazing as a pastor. When you're, you're preaching the gospel, you're preaching the Bible, and you just see it, they're like, I get it. I understand it. And you actually see it translate to life, and you see it over the long haul. There is nothing that gives a pastor greater joy than to see that. Seeing people, you hear us talk about here at TBC a lot about core values, surrender, community, mission. This is what we're talking about. Seeing people live those things out in their life. And with the students that I get to work with, I get to see them work that out in their life, in their faith. I've been working with high school students since I was actually 19. So technically I never, I never left high school ministry. I'm still doing it today. And uh, it's 18 years now. And with certain students, you can just tell. You can just tell. They just get it. It just transforms. It just changes them. And I want to show you a few pics this morning of a few students that I want to brag on for a little bit. The first one is a guy named Jacob Burlingame. And I told him earlier, if he didn't like the pic, he shouldn't have put it on Facebook, right? <laughs> but Jacob's a fun guy. And, um, and I'll tell you, honestly, uh, he came to us as, as an eighth grader and came to know Christ fairly quickly, got baptized, but um, comes from a very, very difficult home situation. And, um, yeah, he's had some struggles, like we all do. He and I have had some really hard conversations at times. In fact, there have been times where I've thought, you know what, after that conversation, I hope this isn't the case, but I'm not sure we'll see him again. And yet he's come back Sunday and Wednesday and stayed involved. And he's a kid that was on this stage this morning, uh, graduating uh, this year. He's a kid that right now is trying to walk in truth and trying to live it out, flesh it out. Second person I want to talk about is a girl named C.J. Anderson. She's a girl that came to us from Temple High School. She came to Christ as a freshman. And she's that, that kid that we'd be like at a fun event, having a good time, and she'd want to talk about Jesus. Like she'd want to, I've got some questions I want to ask you, but I want to ask you some things. I want to talk about some things. And just a really um, uh, inquisitive mind. And someone who wants to know, I want to make sure that I'm walking in truth. And so she goes off to school last year. She actually graduated last year, went to UNT, got plugged into a church immediately. In January, she calls me, six months ago almost, and she says, Dave, I want to come serve as an intern for you this summer with high school kids. And so here's someone who gets it, who understands it, and does not want to waste time in the summertime. She wants to invest in lives every chance that she gets. Third person I want to talk about is a guy named Morgan Presley. He's in our high school ministry now. And when Morgan first came to us, I asked him, I said, hey, I don't know where you're at in your faith. Can you tell me kind of your background and where you come from? And he wasn't quite sure what he believed about Jesus. He was sort of on the fence at first. But the more he stayed around, the more he got to see things, we began to see a change, and he began to walk and live out truth in our youth ministry. Funny story about Morgan. This shows you his sense of humor. When he first came to us, he wanted to do impact. Backer Bible Clubs. And he used to always wear this stocking hat with the, the Bud Light logo on the front. And I said, 
we got closer to impact, and I said, man, you know, you can't, you can't wear that around the kids. You know that, right? And he goes, okay. So he goes and puts a piece of duct tape over the Bud Light logo, and he writes on the duct tape, not Bud Light. That's his sense of humor. But you know what he's doing? This summer, you know what he's doing? He's spending three months in Estonia on a mission trip and trying to raise money for that. He's someone who gets it. He's he's walking and living in truth. I love to talk about all my students, but you know that we do impact every year. We have 130 students that are giving up the first two weeks of summer to minister the gospel to over 1,000 little kids in our area. It's amazing to me that they do this every single year. And not only that, that would be great just by itself, but not only that, but there's several students that take it upon themselves to carry on impact-style clubs throughout the year at government housing projects. I didn't start that. They did. And so nothing gives a pastor greater joy than to see students like that walking and living out the truth. Look at verse 5. It says, Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all of your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. So in the early church, we saw lots of movement, lots of mission work happening in that part of the world. Missionaries being sent from one church to another, one town to another. But in that day, if you travel, there's no hotels, so you've got to go find some Christians and hope they're hospitable to you. That's your plan for travel in that day. Now, when you and I think of hospitality, we usually think of Martha Stewart, or let's invite our best friends over for dinner, or in my case, we see hospitality as a chance to show off our house. I mean, let's be honest. Everyone does that to a certain extent. This is kind of the year of us improving the house quite a bit. And so recently we got a new yard, new couches, new dining room table. And I'm thinking, like, we need to have somebody over, man, and show this place off. And so that's how we envision hospitality. But back then, that's not what this was. Look back at verse 5. Strangers as they are. These people are strangers. Like, Gaius doesn't even know who they are. They're strangers to him. They're strangers to him. But Gaius operated just like John did. He believed if we have Christ in common, then we have all things in common. We've got everything in common. If we share Christ, then we share all things. This is where I really want to encourage you as a body of believers, because we had a missionary couple come in the last couple of weeks named Sarah and Christian Nast. They're missionaries over in Asia. And I asked them, I said, hey, can we have you guys over for dinner one night? And Christian said, well, you could, but we're booked up for the next week. And it was lunch and dinner. I'm thinking, really? You're booked up for an entire week at this church for lunches and dinners? And that was the case. And here's the reality. You all beat me to it. You show hospitality to people like this, just like Gaius is doing. And you beat us to it. So you're to be commended for that. But what I want you to see here in verse 8, this is really important, is if you feel like 
You're giving financially and showing hospitality to people that are missionaries. You might think to yourself that this is just a small task. It's not that big of a deal. Verse 8 proves you wrong. Verse 8 says, when you do these kinds of things, you become a fellow worker for the truth. And that is no small thing. People who are missionaries like that, they cannot function. They would not survive if there weren't people like that giving and sacrificing and being hospitable towards them in the same way that Gaius and his church is treating these missionaries. Now, so far in this book, we've seen some really positive things. We've seen sacrifice. We've seen hospitality. We have seen people walking and living in truth. But in verse 9, all that changes. Look at verse 9. It says, I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he's doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. So there's a lot that we don't know about Diotrephes. We don't know if they're part of the same church. We don't know why Diotrephes rejected John's authority. But here's what we do know. We know that Diotrephes is spreading lies and gossip. He refuses to welcome these missionaries. And he wants to kick out the people who do welcome them. We also know he was in church leadership. And we also know that he was selfish. Instead of putting Christ first, he put himself first. So let's just recap this book so far. Gaius is someone who walks in truth, builds up the church, serves the church. Diotrephes walks in lies, tears down the church, and discourages hospitality. These men are at polar opposites. And in this book, I want you to see this. In this book, right here, we see it. We see the two natures of the church. The church is, has people like Gaius who are building the church up, and the church has people like Diotrephes who are tearing the church down. The church is both glorious and messy at the same time. At the same time. You know, I grew up in a church that had a lot of people like Diotrephes. And I don't know where you come from this morning, but you can probably relate to this, that there are some messy situations you can see in the church with God's people. And I grew up in a situation like that. I went to this church in Virginia, Manassas, Virginia, called the Maine Baptist Church. And, and that's where I grew up. First 19 years of my life I spent this church. And in this church, we had a senior pastor who tried to fire the youth pastor and the worship pastor in the same day. Now, in this kind of church, you can't, he couldn't fire them. He could only ask for the resignation. So he asked for the resignation, and they knew that he was a problem in the church, the senior pastor was. So they both said, no, we're not going to resign. We're going to kind of push this a bit and see what God does with this. So two men chose not to resign. So this forced the issue with our church. They go and hire a consultant. They bring the consultant in to figure out what's wrong and how to go from there. The consultant has meeting after meeting after meeting. This led to gossip, slander, lies, division. And let me tell you that some of the deacons were the worst ones. Some of the leaders were the worst ones. And so the consultant couldn't figure this whole thing out. 
And so he recommended, he made a recommendation that all the pastors go or all the pastors stay. And as a church, we held a business meeting, and it was a very intense, heated meeting. At the end of that meeting, we all got to vote yes or no on his referendum. And so there I am as an 18-year-old kid with tears streaming down my face and a card in my hand to vote yes or no. And all I could think about sitting in that pew was, what have we come to? What is wrong with us? What is wrong with the church? And so on that day, I could not check yes. But I was in the minority that day. And just like that, all the pastors were gone. Let go. And I left that place so angry and so bitter, just wondering how in the world did this happen in a place where people claim to be Christians. That place was a mess. That church was a mess. But in the midst of that mess, there were some people that were kind of like guys to me. One couple was a, a couple named Rob and Bonnie Wetzel. Rob was my youth pastor. He came in my freshman year, and I don't know how he did it, but the entire four years were very difficult for him. But somehow he maintained this sense of positivity, encouragement. He led mission trips, had us into his home. He showed us hospitality. He was someone who was a Gaius in my life in the midst of a chaotic mess. In the middle of that mess, there was still something glorious about that church. The church is where I came to Christ. It's where I was convicted of my sin. It's where I met some really encouraging people. But for a few years after that, I was still bitter at the church. I was cynical. I was jaded. And it wasn't until a few years later where God changed my perspective and brought some healing from this. And I married an awesome woman named Courtney, and she had gone to college in, or gone to grad school in Colorado, and a professor of hers named Tom Varney, he wrote an article, a short read called Sacred Discontent. And he says that the church is both glorious and messy at the same time. We see people like Gaius, we see people like Diotrephes. And I'm sure that you can relate to this, you can feel often, very often very blessed and bitter at the same time in the church. And so I want to read some quotes to you this morning. And I, my, my prayer this morning is that, that this morning is kind of a healing time for some of you as you think through ways in which you've been bitter towards the church, possibly this one or others, or as a whole. Here's the first quote by Eugene Peterson. The church is both an instrument of God's work and at the same time a culturally bound monument to human fallenness. So even while God's trying to do his work, While that's happening, the church is also a culturally bound monument to sin. And so when someone says, yeah, the church is messed up, it's full of hypocrites, I'd say, yeah, you're right, it is. But it's a reminder of how much we need Jesus. It points us to Jesus. The next quote I want to read to you by Will Willimon, it says, Many of those who criticize the church do so on the basis of an ideal. They set up an abstract picture of the church and then criticize the real church when it fails to resemble the fantasy. 
We are humans, and our communities reflect our humanity at its best and its worst. So what you and I tend to do is we prop up in our minds a picture of what the church is supposed to be, and when it doesn't meet that, we bail, we jump ship, we abandon. Now you might think to yourself, okay, well, Dave, like we've not bailed on the church. We're in the Sunday morning service, right? Like we're here. And I would say, yes, that's, that's, this is an important place for you to be. But here's my question for you. Is what about community? What about a small group? Have you bailed on those smaller settings because they can be a bit more messy? I mean, in here, it's a little bit cleaner, isn't it? In here, it's a little bit easier. But go to a small group, a community group. Things get crazy. You meet a person like Diotrephes that you don't like, don't get along with. And we tend to retreat back into just the bigger settings where no things are predictable. And so I think at times we don't engage there because we know we'll be disappointed, right? Next what I want you to see is by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He says, he who loves his dream of community more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter. And so if you and I are people that love our picture, our image, our ideal of what community is supposed to be, if we love that more than the people themselves, then we're going to destroy community. And I would say it's not just the church that has these two natures. I would say all relationships do, don't they? Friendship, messy and glorious. Marriage, messy and glorious. Amen? You agree with this? I mean, my wife and I disagree sometimes, especially when she's wrong. So every relationship is messy and glorious, and this includes the corporate body of the church. The writer of this article, Sacred Discontent, he says, and I love this quote, he says, people who do not understand the dual nature of relationships will never succeed at them. And so if you don't understand the glorious and messy nature of marriage, friendship, the church, you'll never be successful in those places because you're going to think it's all glory and no mess. When the mess hits, you're gone. You've jumped ship. As a high school pastor, I love students, but I'll be really honest with you, that at their stage of life, if they hit bumps in the road, if they hit friction, they typically jump ship, they typically bail, and I hate it, and I try to pastor them through it, but it's hard. And so this writer, he says, if we're, gonna, if we're going to pastor people well, if we're going to function properly in the church... We've got to have what he calls a sacred discontent. Here's how he defines that. A godly, productive disillusionment that accepts both the reality of sin and the future hope of God. And so if you and I are going to function in these two natures, glory and mess, we've got to have this thing called a sacred discontent. Now this is not cynical discontent. This is not... I'm depressed about the church. I don't know what to do. I'm going to bail. I'm going to check out because I just don't know what to do. That's cynical discontent. Sacred discontent is a disillusionment. It is an acknowledgement of the sin and the mess of the church. Because we see John in the passage. Is he going to deal with the sin, with diatrophies? Yes, he is. He will. He'll deal with it. But at the same time, having your eyes fixed on Jesus in the future and seeing what God can do. 
seeing the future hope of God in the midst of the mess. And I think we see this in 3 John. If you look down at uh, verse 11, we see this play out in this book where John says, Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. So we see this principle, this sacred discontent at work in the passage when John says to him, even though there's evil and wickedness around you in Diotrephes, continue doing what you are doing. In the midst of the mess, try to bring about something glorious. So I want you to listen to this. Imagine this. God takes something broken and messy in the church and he turns it into something glorious. And you know what this sounds like. This sounds like the cross. God takes something that's sinful and messy and broken, the execution of Jesus Christ on the cross, and he turns it into something glorious to redeem mankind. This is what God does. This is the gospel. And so John might as well have said, Gaius, don't imitate Diotrephes, but imitate Jesus on the cross, who despite the evil being done to him, he bled and he died for his church and gave himself up for her. We see this in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, where Paul says, But God shows his love for us, and that where we're still sinners, Christ died for us. When you and I are in the middle of the mess, when you and I are enemies against God, that's precisely when Jesus dies for us. In our mess, he does not abandon us. He does not leave us. He does not bail on us. That's when he dies. That's when he shows his greatest act of love, is when you and I are enemies against him. His greatest sacrifice is when you and I are in the middle of our sinful mess. And this is the gospel. And if we are sinners who can be reconciled to God, how much more can we be reconciled to each other? And so again, I don't know where you come from. I don't know what your story is. I don't know what your background is in church. But I imagine there's some pain in this room. And for a few minutes here, I just want you to go ahead and close your eyes. Just bow your head and close your eyes. And I just want you to think through a few things with me. I want the gospel to do its work this morning. If you're someone who is not a believer, you would say you're not a follower of Christ. And you would say that you think the church is full of hypocrites. I would say to you that you're right, it is. But I want to remind you that the church has people who claim to be Christians, but might not be Christians. The church also has people who are Christians, but struggle with sin. And I don't know your story, but I'm going to encourage you this morning that it makes no sense to reject Jesus because of hypocrisy you see in the church. Because Jesus agrees with you. He agrees with you that it's sinful and wrong. It makes no sense to reject him based on what you see in the church. And so if that's you, if you're an unbeliever this morning, I'm inviting you this morning to put that aside and to surrender your life to him this morning. Put your faith and trust in him. Maybe you're someone who... You're like Diotrephes. You're the divisive person. You're the slanderous person. You're the gossip. You're the 
you're that person. If that's you, I'm going to invite you now just to be, I hope you're convicted by that. My hope for you this morning is that you just repent, that you turn towards Christ in the midst of that. I pray that he sends someone, brother or sister in Christ, into your life to speak truth and love to you and that you turn towards him in that and that you turn away from that kind of divisiveness. Or maybe you're someone who's just, you've been stung, you've been sinned against in the church, you've got a bitter taste in your mouth about the church, and you don't know what to do about it. And this morning I want to invite you to have the same kind of sacred discontent that John had, not cynical, but sacred, the same kind of discontent that Jesus had on the cross for us. That the gospel would just so impact your view of the church, you would see what God is trying to accomplish in this glorious mess called the church. That's my prayer for you this morning. Let's pray. God, we just thank you so much that you're a God that is so faithful to us in spite of our issues, in spite of our sin. We thank you that we get to be a part of this glorious mess called the church. We thank you that we get to see you work in spite of ourselves. And we thank you that you get the glory for that. We praise you and we thank you for sacrificing for us when we were your enemy, Father. We thank you, we praise you, Father. We pray all this in your name. Amen.